This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. For years, modern medicine has claimed that eating during labor can be dangerous to mom and baby. Most women in North America are at least somewhat restricted with food and beverage intake during labor, particularly in the hospital setting. A new study presented by the American Society of Anesthesiologists now shows most healthy women would benefit from a light meal during labor. Find out why today on Preggy Pals. Um, is that a plus sign? Pink or blue? Hospital or home birth? What type of food should I be eating? I think I just peed myself. I'm pregnant. And I have to exercise? What, Pregnancy Glow? Wait, was that a contraction? (laughs) Gotta make these pants fit! I've got cankles! What do you mean there's more than one? You've got the symptoms, and now you've got the support you need for a happy nine months. This is Preggy Pals, your pregnancy, your way. Welcome to Preggy Pals, broadcasting from the Birth Education Center of San Diego. Preggy Pals is your online, on-the-go support group for expecting parents and those hoping to become pregnant. I'm your host, Stephanie Glover. We've covered topics for every phase of pregnancy. Visit the episode guide on our website to scroll through those topics. Listen directly on your computer through iTunes or download our free apps available on Android, iTunes, and the Windows Marketplace. And be sure to check out our new network app where you can listen to all your favorite new mommy media shows on the go. Here's Sunny with more information about how you can get involved with Preggy Pals. Okay, so we are in the process now of planning out um, our episodes for 2016, and we would love to have some suggestions on episodes and topics that you guys are most interested in. We've we've done over 130 episodes on Preggy Pals, and so as you can imagine, um, the, the conversations <laughs> go, okay, what haven't we covered yet? All right, what do we need to do now? Um, so if you have ideas of something that you would like us to cover, please let us know. You can send us an email. And um, we also have different segments that you, as pregnant mamas can participate in and uh, it's just a way for us to get you involved with the show. So we've got a segment called Pregnancy Oops where you can share your funny pregnancy stories. We have an Ask the Experts segment where you can call into our team of experts and ask them your pregnancy related questions and we can get those answered for you. And uh, we just like to get mail from you guys. So not mail like delivery mail. (laughs) Like that's a little old school for us. We're talking about email here, right? So um, if you email us and just let us know, you know, if you have any comments about the show or if you have any suggestions. We just want to hear from you guys. It's, it's, it's a nice way for us to connect with all of our listeners. So um, again, if you want to submit for anything, you can go to the contact link on our website at newmommymedia.com. You can also submit via voicemail. So you can call us at 619-866-4775 and let us know what's up. We hope to hear from you soon. Great. Thank you, Sunny. Yeah. So let's get to know the panelists. So I'll go ahead and introduce myself first. So I am Stephanie Glover. I am the host of Preggy Pals. I am also a trained childbirth educator and mom of two. My daughter Gretchen is four and she was my C-section baby. And my daughter Lydia is two and she was my V-back. Hi, my name is Shannon. I'm 31. I'm a stay-at-home mother to two children. Emerson will be four months next week and Gabriella will be two later on this month. And both of my kids were C-sections. And I'm Sunny. I'm producing today's show. And I have four kids of my own, ages five, three, and then I have twins that just turned two. (coughs) Sound familiar? (coughs) If your baby is going through another bout of bad diaper rash... 
then you need to give Dr. Mom Butt Balm a try. It was created by a mom who's also a doctor. When my kids were little, I remember using this thick, goopy cream to help soothe their sensitive skin. Ugh, it was so difficult to wipe off. Not with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. You only need a small amount, and it's really easy to apply and remove. It's also free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, so it's gentle on your baby's delicate skin. Help your baby feel better and get relief from irritating diaper rash with Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Look for it on Amazon and Walmart.com. Hi, I'm Jennifer Durbin, the author of Pregnancy Tips for the Clueless Chick and the mother of two wonderful little boys. I've got some great tips for you for planning your maternity leave. Believe it or not, it's never too early to start planning your maternity leave. And if you plan to go back to work, you'll want to start thinking about daycare sooner rather than later. In some cities, you may need to register your little one for daycare when you're only 12 weeks pregnant, so plan ahead. Before you let your boss know that you're expecting, it's a good idea to have your maternity leave plans all worked out. So start reading your company's leave policies, including short-term disability, and look into FMLA, the Family Medical Leave Act. Your HR department or a trusted coworker who's taken maternity leave are other fabulous resources. When you talk to your boss, he or she will likely want to know when you're due, how long you plan to be on maternity leave, and if you'll be returning to your current work schedule. So make sure you and your partner have worked through all of these details beforehand. But keep in mind, once you hold that little bundle of joy in your arms, all of your carefully laid plans may be thrown right out the window. If you do decide to go back to work, don't underestimate how challenging your transition back may be. Not only will you be readjusting to work, you'll also be adjusting to your baby's new childcare routine. You should also keep in mind that your first week back at the office will be very draining, so it's a good idea to plan to take Friday off to recoup. The worst thing you can do is run yourself ragged trying to do everything, so plan for that extra day of vacation. You can also save yourself a bit of transition stress by having the little one start daycare the week before you go back to work. That way you have plenty of time to ease into your new normal. But most importantly, take into consideration the financial implications of your plan so that you're fully prepared for what lies ahead. For more great tips, visit cluelesschick.com. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas, arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Today, Michael Bautista joins us on the phone from St. John's, Newfoundland, Canada, as our expert. Dr. Bautista was the co-author of the new study that was presented at the American Society of Anesthesiologists meeting in San Diego. He is also the Associate Professor of Faculty of Medicine at Memorial University of Newfoundland. Welcome to Preggy Pals, Dr. Bautista. Oh, thank you very much. So many expectant parents may not even realize that in many cases, mom might be discouraged to eat while in labor. So can you shed some light on how this fasting practice even came about? Uh, sure. 
Well, it goes back to 1946 when a fellow Mendelssohn elucidated the cause of aspiration during general anesthesia for cesarean section as being inhaling the stomach contents into the lungs while the moms were under anesthetic. And since that time, there's been a very justifiable concern for this very dangerous and possibly deadly condition. And that's why moms have been told to fast and labor so that their stomachs would be empty in case they needed urgent surgery. So we know that there was the chance of aspiration. Was that a high risk when he had done that study? Uh, I don't have the numbers with me, but uh, it wasn't the majority of them. But I think it would have been, uh, see if I can find that. Well, no worries. I mean, but it, it, it wasn't a super high risk, but it was certainly there and enough to address. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, because of because of the treatment at the time, it would have been, uh, you know, more likely to result in death than it would be with our with modern medicine today. So it was quite a dangerous uh, complication. Right. And so can you tell us about um, today's risks and how has it changed since then? Well, actually, the risk for aspiration and, you know, the causation of it and women's stomachs haven't changed in 69 years. So the risks are still there. However, those risks and our understanding of labor and the management of labor and the management of those risks has changed over the past 69 years. So I guess it's a, a management problem. From our review of the literature, when we looked at the two key areas with regards to risk of aspiration, that is the volume and the acidity of the stomach contents during labor, as well as the difficulty of inserting the breathing tube into the windpipe of the mom uh, after a starting of anesthesia, we've been able to sort of modify and change our needs for, uh, for general anesthesia and modify the stomach contents of mothers in labor. Now, panelists, had you been aware of these restrictions for, you know, that you might not be able to eat or drink in labor? Did you know that going into labor and delivery? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that was one of the main reasons my midwives told me, like, stay home as long as possible and, you know, try and have light meals because if you end up going to the hospital, they're going to restrict, you know, what you can eat, you know, just in case you end up having a C-section. And being that I had a C-section with both kids, you know, when I ended up at the hospital, um, with Emerson, for example, it was 6 a.m. and I had not eaten yet and I was there because I'd fallen down the stairs and I was 39 weeks pregnant. So we got there and I was like, hey, you know, order some breakfast. Let's get that underway. Mm-hmm. And um, my doctor came and he's like, actually, no. So I was like, let's get the C-section started because I'm Cause hungry. I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Mama wants to eat. I'm ready to eat. Yeah. And Sunny, how about you? Was that something yeah. that you knew going into it that you might not be able to eat or drink? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I definitely did. And and with my first uh, child, we were going for you know vaginal birth. There was no reason to do otherwise and mm-hmm. definitely wanted to try the vaginal birth. Um, and so I remember um, trying to eat as much as I could going to the hospital because I knew once I get there, I got there that they were going to ice chip me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hate. Actually, chips. hospitals have really good ice chips. Yes, I have they, to do. Say. they do. But trying to eat them as a meal when you <laughs> right. want a turkey sandwich. Right, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and then I also knew too, so my first baby was and ended up being a vaginal birth and everything was fine. And then um, I saw my second baby, I knew it was a planned cesarean. And so, you know, I got the whole run through from my doctor before, don't mm-hmm. eat after this, blah, blah, right. blah. And it, and it, 
turned out to be pretty much by the book cesarean, so I never went into labor, nothing like that. Everything turned out fine, um, and I knew what to expect um, with that. And then with my twins, uh, it was a planned cesarean, but they decided, you know, baby A decided to break her water three weeks before my planned cesarean. Right. <laughs> so I ended up going into labor. So um, definitely, you know, varied amounts of food here and there. When I had more time to prepare is when I was hungriest the most <laughs> because I had to get those cutoff marks, you know. Right. Yeah, because you so, it's looming. Exactly. Well, and that's actually a great segue because, you know, Dr. Bautista, one thing as a childbirth educator and as Shannon mentioned, her midwife advised her to have a light meal in early labor. It It's almost um, contradictory because some may be encouraging laboring women to get some food in, but then otherwise they're told, you know, at their birthing place not to eat. So I'm wondering um, if you could just talk a little bit about that and how come, you know, where is that differential, I guess? Yeah, well, that's the uh, that's the most contentious issue. That's mm. what causes the, the greatest debate uh, uh, with regards to anesthesia and labor, uh, etc. So where you put that line when you can't eat and when you can eat is, is I guess, the whole crux of the, uh, the study that we did. We anesthesiologists don't like taking any risks. Right. And so the question centers around that risk is if we let this woman eat during her labor, we shall we will we be putting her at risk for aspiration if she were to have an operative delivery so the the key question here then is to decide who is low risk for that and that is the key question and that has to be there has to be some way of deciding so if you were to anticipate that a woman is going to have a normal vaginal delivery, that you would have anticipated that there would be no problems with anesthesia should that be required, this would be a person that you would consider low risk for having something to eat uh, during early labor. And so um, if that person, say, were to transition into a high-risk category, perhaps there's something wrong with the fetal heart or there's uh, not adequate progress during labor, then one would have to revisit that decision should a, an eating policy be in place. But if you were to leave it to the mom, I gather that most women around four to five centimeters lose their appetite anyway, and now they remain thirsty. And I believe that uh, most jurisdictions would allow women to have clear fluids during labor, and so that's where that would continue. But, um, yeah, when you draw that line, I guess it's very artificial that once you cross the threshold going into the hospital that you have to fast. I think that's where, you know, our study is going to be able to cause some debate and discussion because I don't know if there has been much discussion about this particular aspect of labor in a long time. And it's interesting that you mention appetite and four to five centimeters because I don't know. Sunny, do you know how dilated you got when you were in? Well, once I had my epidural, I do think that um, that it kind of, you know, I wasn't as hungry for whatever reason. Maybe I don't, I'm not really sure why. Um, Maybe you couldn't feel your stomach. <laughs> I couldn't feel my stomach. I couldn't feel anything with my first epidural. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it wasn't until after the baby was born I started to gain feeling that I became ravenous. <laughs> Like, where is my food? So I'm not sure really at what point. Yeah, because I, when I went into labor with my first, um, when I, I went to my OB before, because I said, I feel funny. And she said, let me check you. And I was four centimeters. And I remember thinking in my mind, I need to eat. And there was like a deli in that same complex. And I was like, I, I have to, I have to eat. But being so, it was like this 
kind of combo of nervousness and anxiousness and yeah. excitement that I just didn't have an appetite. I think I picked up a yogurt and a Gatorade oh. and shoved them in my purse just in case, but right. I couldn't even eat then because you're like, this is my first baby. Oh my <laughs> gosh, I'm having a baby like right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, what I did later, we'll discuss. Um, <laughs> I might not have been the best patient at the hospital, but <laughs> um, but then yeah, my second labor, I essentially was just in transition when I woke up. So not hungry at all. Oh my gosh. No. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that uh, you know most most mothers. I don't know if it would have been the epidural, but usually most women will have their epidural at four to five centimeters. So your appetite might have been on the wane mm-hmm. even without the epidural. That's that's a common place for requests for epidurals in, in my in my experience. And so the type of food that one would eat, right, would be would have to take into account that. And so if if at the end of the debate and the discussion over whether or not policy should change. There'll have to definitely be some uh, discussions around what kinds of foods would these be. I would say that yogurt and Gatorade is probably what moms like. Then it doesn't seem most people are looking for pizza or uh, (laughs) fried chicken. Right? (laughs) You know, it, it doesn't seem to be high on their want list anyway. And these sorts of foods would really slow down the abilities of the ability of the stomach to empty into the lower. Uh, intestinal tract. So uh, luckily, I, I think most women don't want that stuff. Right. I, yeah, I think your body guides you to what you need anyway mm-hmm. in most of those circumstances. Yeah, I think so too. Okay, so when we come back, we'll, dis- uh, we'll discuss risk factors further as well as potential benefits to eating and drinking and labor. We will be right back. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Welcome back. Today, we're discussing the risks and benefits of eating while in labor. Dr. Michael Bautista, Associate Professor with the Faculty of Medicine at Memorial University of Newfoundland, is joining us on the phone today as our expert. Dr. Bautista, you were starting to mention the different food types and what would not be very great for the woman's stomach and acid and just kind of in general heaviness of like fried chicken or maybe a giant meatloaf or something while in labor. (laughs) And, um, you know, how I went towards the Gatorade and the yogurt. What would be some other maybe beneficial light foods for, you know, a low risk laboring woman? Well, if policies were to change and our study didn't look at this. In fact, it's a question that we didn't anticipate, but uh, sort of for the purposes of this and uh, the media release for the uh, meeting, we found that uh, other places will highlight low-fat, low-residue food. So that would be things like toast and jam or uh, yogurt or fruit juices, that sort of thing, and nothing too heavy. And I, I don't think that would be out of keeping of what many women in labor would want. They don't want anything too heavy. They want something to keep them going. Right. So I, I would, uh, not having been in labor myself, <laughs> I'm not sure, but no, but <laughs> that would seem to seem to be what would be appropriate from what I've been told by, you know, midwife <laughs> and that sort of thing. Yeah. Right. And reviewing some of the information on this study and just the topic in general, being an educator, it's often compared to a marathon runner. 
And that's correct. You know, yeah. there's calories that are needed to sort of keep your body going. And I'm actually curious from the panelists, did you hit points of exhaustion or, you know, did you hit points where you maybe thought if I had a little bit more fuel, would this have helped? But I don't know. I mean, every labor is so different. So I'm just wondering if you guys had any thoughts on that. I remember being full. So I had my C-section. So with Brie, they were inducing me. It took three days for them to be like, okay, you're not progressing. Your blood pressure hasn't lowered. Um, so we're going to do a C-section. So they had had me on fluids already. But afterwards, I remember feeling hungry and like wanting a turkey sandwich. And my mom and my husband will tell me that in the time that I did labor for a little bit um, before they decided the C-section, I was asking for whole milk. And I wanted apple juice. And um, that was it. And my husband gave me a glass of milk, and I guess I threw it up. I don't remember. (laughs) But my mom has a story. She's like, I was so mad at John for giving you the milk Uh because the doctor said not to have anything. And I I was very persuasive. And so I got my milk, and I promptly threw it all up. (laughs) So, I mean... And and then after the C-section, I remember being hungry, but I remember being satiated by broth. Mm-hmm. I was okay. They only were, they were like, you're going to have broth for a little bit. And I remember being like, that sounds amazing. Can I have crackers with my broth? <laughs> and they were like, sure, you can have some saltines. And I was fine for oh, a couple yeah. of days. And then, you know, slowly, once I got home and stuff like that, I started to like eat like mashed potatoes and like pasta with butter and like soft foods, yeah. gentle foods on my stomach. Mm-hmm. Because again, I'd had a C-section, so I didn't want to eat this big cheeseburger <laughs> and have this pressure yeah. put on onto my new um, healing air, my scar. Well, and it is a little off topic, but I do remember after my C-section too, I I was asking, I mean, like immediately after my C-section, I wanted like Dr. Pepper and garlic noodles. <laughs> wow. I don't know why I was very specific. And, um, <laughs> and that not being allowed to eat for a while longer. And I just had it in my mind that everyone was just being mean to me. <laughs> and I was like, this is just Aww. mean. I don't know. Like I... I labored, I pushed for three hours, I had this surgery and you're not feeding me, I don't get it. Well, it wasn't until my doula when I was pregnant with my second time. So, well, you know, they they have to let your digestion get back on track. You've been on all these drugs. Mm-hmm. And, and so, oh gosh, well, I really hope I wasn't mean to those nurses. So did you start with the, li- the liquid diet and then I, they eased you back in? I think the that they just were giving, yeah, they weren't giving me much. And I think I was still on some sort of drip of something. And then um, I don't really recall taking much orally at all. Well, I know. So between my second child and my twins, I think there was, oh, there was 18 months in between those two births. Okay. And so with my second child, I remember, so again, C-section, first C-section I ever had. And um, I was so hungry afterwards, so hungry. And they said, no, like it's going to take a day and a half or two days for us to get you back up to where you were. So it started out with, you know, just like juices and stuff like that. And they'd slowly work me. And by the time I actually got food, I really thought I was starving to death. I really did. Now it was different. And maybe this is a hospital to hospital hospital thing actually ended up giving birth at the same hospital but they had they told me when I went um after I had my twins I'm like oh, okay so now I gotta do this whole liquid thing again they said no we've changed our policy you don't have to do that anymore and I said you can me I can have whatever I want and they said you can have whatever you want yeah because I, I gave birth just before midnight and I think I got my first meal around 6 30 a.m so it wasn't yeah it wasn't days 
but it felt like. But it wasn't like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because I just wanted some it's garlic hard. noodles. Exactly. Turns out they don't have garlic noodles for breakfast in the hospital <laughs> either. So <laughs> they're pretty rigid about what they'll like. You know, yeah. it's like, okay, it's morning, but I'd like a cheeseburger. And they're like, actually, it's not how this works. Right. <laughs> oh, it's not room service? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, Dr. Bautista, is there, are there certain patients that should still avoid eating during labor, like certain medical conditions? I think you might have touched on one, but what are some conditions that might further put someone at risk for? Uh, complications. Well, I guess that uh, when you're talking, first of all, just getting back about cesarean sections, oh, yeah. you see, one of the things that we would consider, you would consider being low risk is if you want to go on to have a vaginal delivery. Because mm-hmm. when you have an operative delivery like a cesarean section, particularly if it's a booked one, that would be treated as if it was elective surgery. Mm-hmm. So that the fasting protocols as they pertain to cesarean sections would be different in, than the case of a woman who's starting in labor. Uh, because you are going in for surgery and, and the you know that risk for a of fact. complications associated <laughs> right. with that, you know, the bleeding that they talk about when they get informed consent, etc., you may need to go to sleep. Those things would have heightened the risk for getting this aspiration problem so that the fasting would have been more uh, rigorous. Mm-hmm. In that. With regards to patient groups, that you would restrict food from. It's actually the preeclampsia group is one uh, patient uh, group of mothers that uh, was identified, and these would have been the ones with the high blood pressure uh, or had seizures during their their, uh, labor and delivery. So that's one high-risk group. Uh, And the other high-risk group is obesity. And with regards to the first one, the swelling that you have in your feet is also in your uh, throat so that mm. it makes placing that breathing tube more tricky, more problematic. And similarly with the obese patient, they tend to have higher stomach pressures and also perhaps the same difficulty with placing that breathing tube. So those were two groups that have a higher incidence of aspiration in, in the literature study that we did. So those groups... And again, you know, it comes down to two, I guess, basic things with regards to who shouldn't and who should. It's a decision whether or not if we were going to put this patient to sleep in an emergency, would that patient give us a problem that would predispose them to aspiration? And like those two groups would be there. Mm -hmm. And then following from that, is this a woman who we might anticipate having to do an operative delivery? Now, Luckily for, at least in my center, and I'm sure everywhere in North America, the obstetricians are ones who are very astute in in seeing a woman in labor, knowing by their history or about the progress in their labor, whether or not they're going to be at risk for an operative delivery, either a cesarean section because the fetal heart is a little bit off or because their prenatal history suggests that there may be a problem. And they get us to put in epidurals early in these women to avoid a general anesthetic several hours later. If they don't need the cesarean section, everybody's happy and they've had their epidural for labor and that's great, but anticipated a potential problem the epidural is in early, and then if they need a cesarean section, nine times out of ten, we just top it up and go in and do the section mm-hmm. so that we don't have to deal with the risk of general anesthesia. And I think that's uh, uh, one of the things that in recent times has avoided uh, or lowered the rate of aspiration is because we're putting fewer fewer and women, uh, women to sleep because our obstetricians are anticipating problems far earlier in the game. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of this is uh, 
modern obstetric and anesthesia practice it has just lowered that risk of aspiration because we're just doing so fewer general anesthetics. Now, I don't know if you can speak to this. Are there risks to fasting while in labor? Well, you know, I guess we've had 69 years of it, and uh, <laughs> you know, I don't. It's very hard to say, you know, from a scientific scientific perspective, what were the risks? But certainly, we have some data showing that because nothing's going in the stomach, that the, the acid is allowed to increase in volume and in acidity, mm. because it's not there's no transition going from there, you know. And so there is a risk that gastric volumes can increase. Fasting never guaranteed that a woman's stomach would empty when she's pregnant. And there is some work that shows that you can ultrasound a woman's stomach eight hours after fasting or 24 hours of fasting, and they're still not totally empty. So that uh, I guess the risk of fasting would have also been a false sense of security that I've got an empty stomach to deal with Mm -hmm. with regards to my anesthetic. As as it pertains to like the calorie deprivation that a woman has for not having eaten, we don't have any data on whether or not that increases, say, the risk of failing to progress, or is the lack of calories affecting the woman so she can't power through labor? I mm-hmm. think that is an assumption, but it's not proven. Okay. Are the changes in the blood, uh, because a woman can become more acidotic in her blood. Does that have an adverse effect on the newborn baby or herself? We don't know. But there are definitely metabolic things that happen as a consequence of fasting, but we can't presume that they were risky or dangerous. I see. More studies. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's. I think that what I guess what we hope by this poster, which has happened more than ever, is that uh, people are paying attention to the question. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so if you don't let them eat and they don't get any calories, so what what happens then? So I, I think that the creation of discussion uh, will hopefully make some nice changes for people or for mothers anyway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I was going to ask, how does such a study affect actual hospital practices? Um, what just time? <laughs> what happens after you have a study that um, creates this dialogue? When does policy change happen? Well, you know, I think that uh, there's been, I gather in the U.S., I'm in Canada now, mm-hmm. and I gather that this thing has been covered all over the place. And yes. it, it's a poster. It, it was a well-conducted literature review. And so what has to happen now and what's happening now more urgently than we had thought is that uh, we're writing uh, the article up uh, to, and we'd like to submit it to uh, a good peer-reviewed journal so that what we have written will come under the scrutiny of my expert colleagues and to see that uh, hopefully that we'll have it so that I guess amongst revisions in that we'll get it published. And then when there's a publication in a peer-reviewed journal, we know that it's undergone the scrutiny of uh, people familiar with research and it gives other of my colleagues an opportunity to comment with their own personal experiences, their own research, and their own opinions. And when that discussion and debate is finished, then I think that given the amount of concern or interest in the area, professional societies of anesthesia will have to revisit their guidelines to see if they should have to change them or not. And I think that's what will be the uh, impetus for change. In Canada, we have something called the uh, Standards of Practice in Anesthesia. And they are national standards by which all anesthesiologists in the country practice. Mm -hmm. 
and our obstetrical fasting guidelines haven't changed for many, many, many years with regards to food. So I would suspect that once something comes out that's, in quotes, official, Mm -hmm. then that will give them an opportunity to read it, discuss it. And the same thing will happen for the American Society of Anesthesiologists in the United States is whether they should revisit that. And that becomes the sort of blanket statement for all the hospitals uh, in the U.S., so I would say that's that's when the change is going to come. So I hope it comes soon. So, uh, <laughs> uh, we're trying hard to get this done. I mean, uh, as I was saying before, that uh, the interest in this is flabbergasting. <laughs> it's just I guess that I, as an anesthesiologist, perhaps as a male, didn't appreciate how important the idea of food and labor was to mothers. Uh, it obviously is extremely important. And so we have to really get on it right away. Oh, and the dialogue started, so we get to watch where this goes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope it's more than entertaining. I hope it's fruitful. Oh, I, <laughs> yeah. I feel it yeah, will be. Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank, yeah. you. thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Bautista. For more information about Michael Bautista, as well as information of any of our panelists, visit the episode page of our website. This conversation continues for members of our Preggy Pals Club. After the show, Dr. Bautista is going to talk about how to learn more about your hospital's practices regarding eating and drinking in labor. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Preggy Pals, we have a question for one of our experts. Janice in Okinawa writes, My sister tells me that eating sushi is dangerous for the baby, but I see women doing it where I live all the time. What is the danger in eating sushi while pregnant? Hello, I'm Lindsay Sovic, a registered dietitian nutritionist in San Diego, California, USA. Janice, thanks for asking this question. In the United States, it is recommended that pregnant women do not consume raw fish because of the increased risk for exposure to parasites and bacteria. While a woman is pregnant, her immune system is not as strong, and this makes her more susceptible to foodborne illness. With this said, some women still choose to take the risk and indulge in things like raw sushi from reputable restaurants. Just always talk this over with your physician or midwife. It is not, however, recommended that you cut out fish altogether when pregnant. Pregnant women can consider choosing cooked versions of sushi for a safer option, provided the chef cleans the prep surface before making the sushi. Consuming low mercury fish provides your body with omega-3s, which are crucial to the baby's brain development. To keep mercury levels low, it's recommended that one consume 12 ounces or less of low mercury-containing fish per week. Some examples are salmon, anchovies, herring, sardines, trout, pan-like tuna, and Atlantic and Pacific mackerel. I hope this is helpful. Thanks. That wraps up our show for today. We appreciate you listening to Preggy Pals. Don't forget to check out our sister shows, Newbies, for postpartum moms during baby's first year, Parent Savers for parents with infants and toddlers, Twin Talks for parents of multiples, and The Boob Group for moms who breastfeed. This is Preggy Pals, your pregnancy, your way. This has been a new mommy media production. The information and material contained in this episode are presented for educational purposes only. Statements and opinions expressed in this episode are not necessarily those of New Mommy Media and should not be considered facts. 
Though such information and materials are believed to be accurate, it is not intended to replace or substitute for professional medical advice or care and should not be used for diagnosing or treating health care problem or disease or prescribing any medication. If you have questions or concerns regarding your physical or mental health or the health of your baby, please seek assistance from a qualified health care provider. How would you like to have your own show on the New Mommy Media Network? We're expanding our lineup and looking for great content. If you're a business or organization interested in learning more about our co-branded podcasts, visit our website at newmommymedia.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, mamas. Don't forget to check out Mighty Moms. It's our online community built for new moms just like you. Not only can you connect with other moms, but you can also join us backstage for special mom-only online events. And you'll also be notified when we're recording so you can join us as a special guest. Visit our website, newmommymedia.com, and click on the Mighty Moms banner. It's free. That's newmommymedia.com. See you there.